In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I wrote, we have a little chat group where we talk about uh, the scriptures um, and kind of what we're doing liturgically. And I wrote to everybody, I have a busy week because we're getting ready to move houses. Um, you can come talk, thank you. We'll get, we're, come talk to me about that if you're interested later. Um, so anyway, busy week, and um, I read these scriptures like all together, and I thought, I don't know what to do with this, right? Sometimes I feel like the good, the good Reverend Dr. Wilde Gaffney has given us uh, things that are too hard, difficult for us to understand. So, so I will admit that I do not, I, this sermon is about the gospel passage uh, only, and so I don't bring in the other ones. I hope the Holy Spirit spoke to you through those scriptures. Uh, that's part of why we read scripture. It's not always to preach a sermon on about it. It's just sometimes to hear it. So. Anyway, this is uh, from the gospel passage. Who then is the greatest in the realm of the heavens? The disciples ask Jesus, desperately trying to figure out what they need to do to get ahead in this new empire that God is creating. They're trying to figure out who is better than who. What's the new scorecard that we need to pay attention to? They're sizing each other up, trying to figure out if Peter's bluster, is that what's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Or is it the quiet ones who are going to be the greatest, like maybe John? And perhaps we think of them, I think sometimes we read the Gospels and we see the things the disciples do and we're like, oh, <laughs> poor naive people. We would never do such things, right? But this drive to ascertain and achieve status among the people that we are with, the communities that we belong to, this is universal among humans. We do this all the time. We play these status games all the time. And they're oftentimes hidden underneath normal conversation topics, right? Often underneath these normal things that are perfectly fine to talk about, sometimes what we're really doing is trying to figure out where we stand in light of the others that we're talking with, right? What do you do for a living? Where did you go to school? Did you go to school? Where do you live? What kind of home do you live in? Do you rent or own? Where do you go on vacation? Do you, go, do you vacation at all? What church do you go to? What kind of food do you like? What TV shows do you watch? Do you watch TV? Do you own a TV? What kind of car do you drive? Where do your kids go to school? Are you busy or do you have a lot of time on your hands? What do you do for fun? Again, totally normal conversation topics, but can you perceive sometimes the ways that we ask these questions, that inside of our hearts, what we're trying to do is figure out who's better than who? How do we size each other up? We also figure out status just by looking at each other, observing each other. We size each other up by, based on accent sometimes, based on appearance, smell, tooth whiteness, tooth straightness, gender norms and assumptions clothing, conversational skills, etc. In high school, uh, I started a punk rock band with my brother, and we got involved with the scene, as we called it. That's what we called it. Um, and I was attracted, and still am, to the kind of the DIY, the do-it-yourself ethos of punk rock, um, and the overt sort of abandonment of status games of the mainstream culture. Loved it. You know, we're not climbing the corporate ladder. We don't want to work for the man. We're not trying to be popular. We're not obsessed with fitting in in all the latest fashions, like those jocks or those preps. 
the normies. But it wasn't too long being part of the scene before I noticed that we had abandoned those status games only to invent our own. While claiming not to care about such things, we, punk, we punks were often obsessed with status. For them, making a lot of money was high status. For us, making too much money was low status. That was selling out, right? You can't become too successful. That's a status symbol, right, in that community. For them, wearing the latest fashions from, I don't know, The Gap was uh, high status. You could afford clothes from The Gap. Oh, that's high status. For us, that would have been very low status. Don't show up to a punk rock show wearing The Gap, right? What are you doing here? You don't belong here. Piercings, tattoos, baggy clothes. This was the 90s. Uh, leather. I think baggy clothes are coming back, aren't they? Okay, all right. It's called oversized now. Thank you, Olivia. <laughs> See, I would be terrible. I would be terrible at modern uh, youth culture. Okay, thank you. It's called oversized now, but we called it baggy back in the day. <laughs> Colorful hair. The more garish and crazy, the better. That's high status. For them, enjoying the most popular musical artist that you found on Top 40 Radio was high status. That was how you fit in. Oh yeah, I like boys to men, you know, etc. For us, the more obscure the band, the better. If you could ever say like, hey, what do you like to listen to? And you were able to say, this was the ultimate high status thing that you could do. What do you like to listen to? You've probably never heard of them. <laughs> high status, that was elite level. So uh, I was chagrined to find out that we didn't stop caring about status. We just changed the scorecard to maybe fit stuff that we liked, you know? Um, so we were still measuring ourselves up against each other to see who was really punk and who was a poser, right? In other words, we were asking, who then is the greatest in the realm of punk rock? <laughs> and we have other ways of seeking status among each other. Sometimes it's not trying to be the best. But sometimes we seek status by trying to uh, let others know that we're very good, we're very good people, or I'm a very helpful person. That's how I get status in this community. I'm a very impressive person. I'm a very unique person. I'm a very insightful person. We try to show each other these things. I'm a very loyal person. I'm very fun. You'll love me. Right? I'm a good leader. I'm strong. I'm not going to be a problem around here. I promise. All kinds of different things that we do to play these status games, to figure out where we fit in and where we belong. And it's because we're afraid that we're not going to be loved otherwise. That's why we do this. But Jesus' answer to this question to the disciples helps us see the good news today. That in the realm of the heavens, which is already here among us, we can let go of our relentless striving for status, all the ways that we rank each other to figure out who's better than who, and just rest in the fierce love of God, the love that God has for each of us. We learn to do this, beloved friends, by humbling ourselves and becoming like those with no status, and by embracing and honoring each other, especially those pushed to the margins. And in doing so, we welcome Jesus himself in our midst. And we deepen our participation in this life that God shares with us.
This passage where the disciples ask this question is part of a time of instruction for the disciples between the transfiguration and the cross, where they're learning what it means to embody this countercultural way of life that Jesus is inaugurating. The disciples, I think, are probably starting to notice that the things that Jesus affirms are not quite the same things that they're used to being affirmed. Wealth, all the ways that you accumulate status and honor in that society. They're like, this is different. Jesus is showing us something different. And so they're asking him, as their rabbi, what, who then is the greatest? What's the scorecard for the realm of the heavens? How do we invest our time in such a way that we can invest in gaining status in this new kingdom, Jesus, that you're inaugurating? How are we going to fit into the hierarchy? And Jesus answers by finding the lowest status person he could and calling them into the midst, which is a child. This is hard for us sometimes because children are often seen as sweet and innocent, and some of them are. No, I'm just <laughs> Apologies. Um, they're often seen as sweet. We think that Jesus is making a point about being innocent or sweet here, but he's not. In Roman patriarchal households, children were viewed as useless at best. They couldn't really contribute to society, and so they were ignored, or at worst, they were unpredictable. They were ignorant. They were irrational, in scare quotes. And so, as such, they were a little bit of a threat to the, male, the adult male civic order, where such things are, yeah, they're not valued. Um, children represent then, un until they could grow up and participate in society, they were of very little value. And so the child here doesn't represent sweetness or innocence. The child here represents powerlessness, insignificance, the outsiders, those who are pushed to the margins, those that the disciples are asking about who's the greatest. There are probably children everywhere. They didn't see them at all. And Jesus says, look at this one, this one that you think of as very low status. And he brings that child into the midst of them. He directs their attention to this child. And by doing so, Jesus is turning this whole question on its head. You're worried about status. Well, here, look at this child, this person that you normally don't even see. You don't even notice them. You don't consider them significant at all. You think these people are excluded from the important business of God's empire. Well, unless you become like this child, you're not even going to get in. He flips the whole thing on its head. You want to learn what it means to be great, to have status? Humble yourself and become like one with no status. And you'll learn a thing or two. That's what he's telling his disciples. And then Jesus switches gears a little bit here. The second thing he says is this. Think of it like this. That's my gloss on what Jesus is doing here. But he says, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So it's like one way of gaining status in that culture was to show hospitality to someone of greater status, to welcome them, to receive them. And so Jesus says, well, think about it like this. You likely think of me as the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, right? I'm the king of this kingdom. Well, every time you welcome someone of low status, you know who you're welcoming? You're welcoming me. That's how this new kingdom works. That's how God's empire works. The picture that Jesus is painting here for the disciples and for us today is a community where status games of any kind don't work at all. They don't even make sense to try to play the game. It's not a new scorecard. It's a different game. 
And Jesus is trying to help his disciples understand this. It's a different game where instead of trying to achieve the high status, we all take the lowest position. And we honor each other as if Christ was walking into the room. Because he is. In the realm of the heavens, beloved, which is already here among us, we can let go of our relentless striving for status, all the ways that we rank each other to figure out who's better than who, and just rest in the fierce love that God has for each one of us. We learn to do this by humbling ourselves and becoming like those with no status, and by embracing and honoring each other, especially those pushed to the margins of our society's hierarchy of greatness. And in doing so, we welcome Jesus himself into our midst and deepen our participation in the life that God shares with us. The final thing that Jesus says here to his disciples, uh, he kind of starts to sound like a mob boss, doesn't he? Right? Remember what he says right at the end? Hey, and by the way, on the other side of welcoming and receiving one such child as this, the little one who believes in me, if you put a stumbling block or an enticement to sin in front of one of these, that's pretty bad. <laughs> right? You know what would be better, you know, is to have a large millstone hung around your neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. It's like, whoa, Jesus. Whoa. And on the one hand, I think this is an important warning to those of us with some degree of privilege or power, especially church leaders, to take into account. Don't make it hard for people to follow Jesus. Don't put a stumbling block in the way of a little one who's trying to follow Jesus. God protects those people fiercely. So it's a warning to us. Don't make it hard. But also remember, friends, that Jesus invites us all to take this posture of little ones who believe. And so this is a picture of the community of disciples. This is a picture of us. It's the picture of the church. And this is the love that God has for us. It's a fierce love that as we take the, this posture of little ones who believe. We can receive this fierce affirmation of God's love for each of us. As we become a vulnerable community on the margins who've abandoned the pursuit of status and dared to trust in God's empire where the members of the body who seem to be weaker are in fact indispensable and the parts that we think of as less honorable we treat with special honor. As we embody that kind of community together just being little ones, trying to trust Jesus, we can rest in the fierce love that God has that protects us like a mother bear protecting her cubs. So as a church, friends, let us learn how to receive the little ones who believe in our midst. Let's, as a community, learn how to become more aware of our privilege and the silent and subtle ways that we unintentionally exclude and alienate those who are pushed to the margins of our society. One example of this is let's keep learning how to be sensitive and responsive to those with religious trauma, people for whom it's hard to come to church because they've got trauma associated with all, this spiritual, all these spiritual practices. Let's learn to be sensitive to those little ones who are trying to follow Jesus. Let's keep learning how to embrace single people in a world that is designed for the nuclear family, in a world in which the village has disappeared. And singleness is often accompanied by deep loneliness and isolation. Let's learn to notice when we're striving for status 
and learn how to drop those games. We're sizing each other up in subtle ways. And as we do so, beloved, let's rest in our simple belovedness. The vulnerability that each of us carry underneath the ways that we strive for status is that we're afraid that being ourselves isn't enough to be loved. Just being me isn't enough to be loved. I mentioned that liturgy group chat we were talking about, so I was confessing that I didn't really have a sense of the good news of the passages, and I wasn't quite sure where it was all going to go. And Ellie, our senior warden, who you're going to hear from later today, um, she, she texted in that group chat, she said, you being used, good news for me, Father Ben. And it was, you know, she said, I'm not being sarcastic. She had to qualify that she wasn't being sarcastic. <laughs> so I don't know if that says, but... <clears throat> um, draw your own conclusions. Um, but I didn't take it as sarcastic. Uh, it was deeply meaningful for me, actually, um, because it's easy for me to assume that I have to be impressive or insightful or helpful in order to be loved and accepted. I don't want to show up as a child, in other words. I want to show up as a sage, <laughs> dispensing wisdom you've never heard before, or a perceptive pastor who says just the right thing at just the right time. Subtle ways that I'm tempted to try to negotiate status in our community. But just to be me, that's not enough to be loved, is it? Well, I'm learning that it is. And Ellie helped me this week. And you all help me every week. Every time I hear that I'm valued just because I'm me, it affirms the good news that I can let go of my relentless striving after status and just rest in the fierce love that God has for me, which empowers me to embrace and honor others in the same way. So one way of responding to this good news today would be to find someone today during the passing of the peace and proclaim their belovedness to them. Proclaim to them how much you appreciate them just for being them and the fact that they're here. Just say that to them. That's just in a few minutes. Isn't that exciting? You can respond to this good news in a few minutes. Beloved, in the realm of the heavens, which is already here among us, we can let go of our relentless striving after status, all the ways that we rank each other to figure out who's better than who and just rest in the fierce love that God has for each of us. We learn to do this by humbling ourselves and becoming like those with no status and by embracing and honoring each other, especially those pushed to the margins. In doing so, we welcome Jesus himself in our midst. We deepen our participation in the life God shares with us. We're going to spend some time in silence before we pray together, and I just invite you to listen for the leading of the Holy Spirit. How is God calling you to respond today to this good news? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.